This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, we looked at the first half of this chapter last week, and once again, we're talking about discipleship today. What does discipleship look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus on the way? So I'm going to be covering all of these verses as we go through, so I want us just to read one verse before we get into the message this morning, and it's the last one, verse 52, Mark 10 and verse 52. Jesus has just healed Bartimaeus and he says to him, go your way, your faith has made you well, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that is the story of most of us who are here today who have decided to follow Christ, you have opened the eyes of our heart. You have given us spiritual sight. And now you have called us to follow you on the way as your disciples. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word today about more about what that discipleship looks like. So speak to us now, we pray. We pray that you would block out anything that could distract us because these are crucial minutes as we encounter you through your word and we don't want to miss anything that you would want to communicate to us today. Speak to our hearts now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the New York City Marathon is today and it reminded me of something that I saw recently There was a 12-year-old girl from New York, Lee Rodriguez Espada, and she was on her way with her family to what she thought was going to be a 5K race. And she was nervous about it, and she was afraid that they were going to be late. Well, they, they got there, and Lee sees all the runners just taking off, and so she's like, oh, no, I, you know, they're already leaving. And so she just joined right in there, with them and started running. Well, at about the four-mile point of the race, she looked to the runner beside her and she said, how much further is this 5K race? And it was then that she found out that she had actually entered the half marathon, over 13 miles. But she decided just to keep putting one foot in front of the other and she made it to the end. You know, as Jesus and his disciples are moving closer and closer to Jerusalem, his disciples are beginning to ask the question, what kind of a race are we running? And that's what brings forth this statement from Peter that we see in verse 28. Look at Mark 10 and verse 28, where Peter says, We have left everything and followed you. Now, within that statement, 
is a question. Jesus, what does it mean to follow you? What does this discipleship look like? And that's what Jesus is going to be answering in the latter part of this chapter in our text today. The first thing that we see here about discipleship is the disciples' blessing. The disciples' blessing. So with every step, as Jesus and his disciples move closer to Jerusalem, Galilee, which is the home to these guys, is getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror, and their concern about what lies ahead is getting bigger and bigger. And you need to understand that they have left as Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. They've left their, the, the, the close network of family and friends and jobs. All those things were back in Galilee. And by the world's way of measuring things, they've, they've lost. They've lost a lot. But that's the world's math. God has a different kind of math, as we see in verses 29 through 31. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus is saying here, yes, you have left all of those sources of comfort and security behind and your, your, your family, your, your, your friends, all those things. But what you need to understand is that in the new movement that I'm creating and in the new family that I'm creating, you are going to gain that back a hundredfold. And he's talking here about just the, the, the beautiful love and fellowship that exists in a New Testament church. But as wonderful as that is, the imperfect fellowship that we enjoy in the church is just a foretaste of the perfect fellowship that we're going to one day have in heaven and in a new heaven and a new earth. James Edwards says this of these verses, The kingdom of God topples our cherished priorities and demands of disciples new ones. It takes from those who follow Jesus things they would keep and gives to them things they could not imagine. You know, I think about some of the missionaries that our church is related to and I think about, for instance, Joe and Megan serving in Central Asia. I'm thinking about them because I've been in communication with them a couple of times over the past couple of weeks. And they have been called to serve in a place in Central Asia that's sort of like the land that time forgot. <laughs> okay? But God did not forget these people. And he called Joe and Megan and their kids to go and to, to serve among them and share the gospel with them. It is a place that is blanketed 
with a thick layer of snow for much of the year and blanketed with Islam for all of the year. It's a very difficult place to serve. But when you talk with them and when you read their emails, you, you just see that God is doing a beautiful thing. And the light of the gospel is shining in this dark place. And God is, is birthing a beautiful New Testament church. And when you talk with them, you, you can just see, see the love and feel the love that exists among these brothers and sisters in Christ in that church in Central Asia. And the pressure of, the, of life around them and the bleakness of life around them makes their fellowship in the church that much more sweet and intense. And, and it's, it's tough for missionaries like them when they have to leave their field, even for a while, on furlough and come home. In fact, as an IMB trustee, talking with you know, lots and lots and lots of missionaries and their families on a regular basis... I can tell you, if I've heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times. Missionaries and their families say that the toughest thing for them was not the adjustment from America to the mission field. The toughest adjustment is from the mission field back to America. And it's not that they don't love America. And it's not that they don't love their family members who are here. But it's just that God has called them to this place and they experience exactly what Jesus is talking about in this text. They experience just a, a beautiful new family there. And it's, and it's tough, to, it's tough to, to, to leave that. You say what? You know, missionaries serving in places like this, they could be killed. I mean, Jesus here also promises that with these blessings will come persecution. You could die. Yes. My Bible tells me that for the Christian, dying is gain. And Jim Elliot, who was martyred for the gospel, wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We ultimately can't lose in following Christ. So we see here the disciples' blessing. Second, we see the disciples' king. Verses 32 through 35. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And one of my favorite contemporary theologians is Michael Horton, who says this, as an effective communicator, God tells us what he is going to do, does it, and then tells us what he did. And Jesus here is telling them exactly, step by step, what is going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, it's not the first time that he's told them this, but their expectations of what his kingship 
was going to be like were so different from reality that it still hasn't sunk in. They have come to believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the king. But they have, have still not come to terms with, with what that means. You know, most kingdoms will do anything to protect the king. That's the whole premise of the game of chess, right? You have to protect the king. You do anything to protect the king. I think about the days leading up to D-Day in World War II. And General Eisenhower had a dilemma on his hands because the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was insisting that he wanted to be on the bridge of one of the battleships that was involved in the invasion. And Ike knew that this would create all kinds of problems. He knew that if Churchill were killed, that that would be an incredibly destabilizing thing, and it just could not happen. But Churchill was bullheaded and insistent, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to be on a battleship. And so Ike appealed to the one person who could rein in Churchill, and that was King George. And so he went to King George of England and he said, listen, Winston is insisting that he's got to be on the bridge of a battleship and part of the invasion and this just can't happen and you've got to figure out a way to stop it. And so the king went to Churchill and he said, Winston, since you see it as your personal responsibility as prime minister to be on the bridge of a battleship, then certainly it's my personal responsibility as king to be standing there with you. Well, at that point, you know, Churchill became as white as a sheet, and he smiled, and he knew he had lost, because he knew there was no way that he was going to allow the king to be placed in that kind of danger. See, Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus is headed into the teeth of danger. And this king is going to have a crown of thorns smashed down upon his head. This king is going to be beaten, mocked, spat upon. This king is going to be nailed to a cross with words of mockery, king of the Jews inscribed above his head. And this king is going to pay a king's ransom. His life for the life of his people. The disciples' king. Third, we see here the disciples' service. The disciples' service. Verses 35 through 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one, and one at your left, in your glory. Now, do you see the disconnect between this question and what Jesus has just told them? Jesus has just said, I'm going to Jerusalem to be mocked and spat upon and flogged and executed on a cross as a criminal... 
And they're saying, hey, Jesus, when you ride into Jerusalem and glory and set up your political kingdom, can I be in your cabinet? You know, can, I, can, we, can James and John, can we be co-chiefs of staff, you know, sitting at your right and your left hand? I mean, they, they, just don't, they just don't get it. It's like they have a selective sense of hearing. Melissa tells me I have a selective sense of hearing sometimes. Uh, probably especially Wednesday night when Game 7 of the World Series was on. Not sure if Melissa said anything to me uh, during those hours, but I probably would have screened it out. Okay, well, these guys have just screamed out. Every time Jesus talks about his impending death and these horrible things that are going to happen in Jerusalem, they screen it out. They don't want to hear it. They are still holding out hope that he's going to ride into Jerusalem in glory and set up a political kingdom, restore Israel's national glory, and they're vying for, you know, positions in the cabinet to his right and his left. You know, we can have selective hearing when it comes to the Bible. You know, we, can, we, can, we can sort of find ourselves, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves gravitating towards texts that confirm what we what our biases are and what our agenda is, and we can find ourselves avoiding difficult texts that challenge us, that challenge our preconceived notions and our, pre- our preconceived biases and our own agendas. We can find ourselves veering away from difficult texts like that, which is one of the reasons why it's good to study the Bible through book by book, verse by verse, because we can't avoid difficult text. We can have a sense of selective hearing when it comes to God's Word. You know, back in the 50s, Parker Brothers developed a, a board game called Going to Jerusalem. And in this board game, your little this plastic disciple, you know, you had this little, your, your piece was like this little plastic disciple with, with, a, with a beard and a, a robe and sandals and a staff. And so in the game, you would answer Bible questions, and as you answered them correctly, you could move your little plastic disciple closer and closer to Jerusalem. But once the disciple got to Jerusalem, game over! There was no cross. There was no resurrection. It was just sort of like a, a nice, easy adventure, you know, just kind of, a, kind of a, a, an easy walk to Jerusalem, to, to, to wonderful Jerusalem. Reality was just a little bit different. And Jesus says here in, in verses 38 and following, Jesus says to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and, or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This morning we saw water baptism. One of the ordinances of our faith, the other ordinance of our faith is the Lord's Supper where we take the cup. But Jesus here is talking about a different kind of baptism. 
and a different kind of cup. Jesus here is talking about drinking a cup of suffering. He's talking about a baptism of suffering. Jesus is saying, I am going to be immersed in suffering. And not only that, but you guys are going to be as well. You're going to drink this cup. You're going to experience this baptism. And they would. Because all of these guys were going to be persecuted horribly and and most of them were going to die as martyrs. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. (laughs) You know, outwardly they're saying, how, how dare you? How could you two guys ask such, a, such an arrogant, uh, presumptuous uh, question to sit at his right hand and his left? And inwardly, they're thinking, we wanted those positions. We wanted to be there. And see, Jesus knows. Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows that because of our sin nature, that if we're not careful, we, we lust after positions. We lust after prestige and, and earthly power and prominence. And we think of that as greatness. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus calls time out, calls them together, and he says, let's talk about true greatness. Verses 42 and following. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, James Edwards is just so spot on when he says the kingdom of God, uh, uh, Edwards says at no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more with the ethics of the world than in matters of power and service. Jesus speaks of greatness in service rather than greatness of power, prestige, and authority. The desire for power and dominance focuses attention on self and kills love, for love by nature is focused on others. You know, it's, it's appropriate that we would be on this text as uh, we approach Veterans Day on, on Friday because outside of Christianity, the place where I see this kind of a servant self-sacrificing ethic more than any other place in our culture is in the military. People in the military are, are trained to think about the fact that they are serving others and sacrificing themselves for others. And it's those who are serving putting, and putting their lives in harm's way And their families, too, are sacrificing a great deal on behalf of others. We are so thankful for our military. 
and for your families. And we're going to have a special time of prayer for you at the end of the service. But that's the ethic here. It's, it's, it's service on behalf of others. The disciples' service. Fourth, the disciples' sight. The disciples' sight. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, if you ever visit Israel, usually the last town that you go through before heading to Jerusalem is Jericho. Jericho is 20 miles away from Jerusalem, and it's about 3,500 feet below Jerusalem. And so when you head up to Jerusalem from Jericho, you are literally heading up. And Jesus here is about to make that trek. Jesus here is is just leaving Jericho, and he's about to to make this uphill 20-mile trek to Jerusalem. But just as he's leaving town, there's this voice that is desperately calling out from the roadside. Bartimaeus is on the roadside and Bartimaeus is really on the side of the road. He is sidelined. He is about as marginalized as a person could possibly be in that culture. He is a blind beggar. And what happens? Verses 47 and 48. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's interesting, last week we saw that the disciples were rebuking these little, the little kids and telling them not to come to Jesus doesn't have time for you. And of course Jesus rebuked them and said, let the children come. And here we see another very lowly type of person and we see people rebuking him and telling him to shut up and telling him, hey, Jesus doesn't have time for you. But Jesus had time for little children and loved them and welcomed them. And Jesus has time for this lowly, marginalized, sidelined person. Thank God that when we were blind in sin and helpless to save ourselves, that He heard our cry. And He stopped for us. Verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. The word stopped here in Greek literally means that Jesus stood still. I mean, he just stopped dead in his tracks. The cry of this poor, powerless individual stopped Jesus in his tracks. Now listen, Christian, if that's the case, 
then don't you think that when you cry out to him in prayer that he stops for you? Don't you think that when you, as his, one of his beloved children, one of his beloved sons or daughters, don't you know that when you have a need and when you call to your Savior that he hears you and he stops for you? I want to tell you he does stop and he does hear. You bring it to him in prayer. Verses 15 and 51. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, see, Jesus could have just simply... I mean, it was obvious the guy was blind. I mean, Jesus could have just simply said, You're healed. And that's it. But see, Jesus doesn't just want to just kind of mechanically perform a miracle. Jesus is engaging with a person. He's not just going to do something to this person. He's going to do something with this person. And he wants, he wants this person because he knows the needs in this guy's life are much deeper than, than needing physical sight. And Jesus wants to give him an opportunity to express his faith. wants to grant spiritual sight. And so what happens? Verse 52. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, this last sentence has sort of a double meaning. Because Mark is not just saying, he's not just reporting the facts. That the guy recovered his sight, he was healed, and he followed Jesus on the way. Okay, that was true. He did that. But there's a deeper meaning here. Because Bartimaeus' story, in a way, is the story of every disciple. If you're a follower of Jesus, what's happened to you? God opened the eyes of your heart, right? God healed you. God, God gave you spiritual sight. You were once spiritually blind. You're not anymore. Praise God. He opened, he opened your eyes to see who the Savior is and to trust Him. And now you're seeking to follow Him. On the way. That's what being a disciple is, right? We're following him on, on the way. On the way to where? Ultimately, heaven, and a new heaven and a new earth. What about until then? You know, the old song says it. Wherever he leads, I'll go. That should be the spirit that we have every day. We follow Jesus as he leads. We follow him. He's not going to give you like a blueprint of the next ten years of your life. He's going to say, here's what you do. Follow me today. Today. Follow me on the way. And never lead you wrong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much.
for the good news of Jesus. We thank you for the healing that he has given. We thank you that he has opened the eyes of our hearts to see who the Savior is and what the Savior has done for us and to follow him. As we just continue to bow before God right now, I would just ask you, has that happened in your life? Has God opened the eyes of your heart to trust in the Savior, to rely on Him alone for your salvation? He calls you to follow Him today, to turn from sin, from, to, from self, and to turn to Him and trust in what He's done for you on the cross and His resurrection from the dead and say, Lord, I'm following You. You're in charge, not me. It calls you to make that decision, life's ultimate decision. So Father, we pray that we would walk out of here today walking with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about becoming a follower of Christ, we would love to pray with you and talk with you more about what that means. If you're here today and and God's speaking to you about saying, I want to be a part of this church family. We talked about the church family today. And every single person needs a local church family. You don't have one. If God's leading you here, then we want to welcome you you and we invite you to come as others stand and sing. Let's stand. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. 
My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.